there is an obligation that we owe as law students and as lawyers eventually to the legal community to help ensure that it is equitable, accessible, and diverse. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Under Oath, a podcast brought to you and hosted by the organization Women Pursuing Law. I'm Hani Siddiqui, WPL's president. And I'm Zara Kabir, WPL's vice president. Under Oath will aim to shed light on different career paths within law, give you the chance to hear from noted speakers, and show the industry from the POV of a woman. Under Oath will also serve as a platform dedicated to empowering women and non-binary conforming individuals in the law industry. So if that aligns with your ideas, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. On that note, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at UTDWPL and our LinkedIn at UTD Women Pursuing Law. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. and welcome back to another episode of Under Oath. I'm Kavya and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Today I'm joined by Nancy Fairbank and Brooke Lopez. Nancy is currently a student at Harvard Law School, a UTD alum, founder of the Dear Future Colleague nonprofit, which works to provide mentorship and support underrepresented law school applicants. Brooke is also a UTD alum, a current student at UNT Law School, and a founder at the Lone Star Parity Project, which is an organization that works to promote women and femmes in Texas politics. Nancy, Brooke, would you like to give us a brief introduction about yourselves? Yeah, I am a 2L at Harvard Law. I graduated from UT Dallas in 2017 after studying political science. Originally, I'm from Missouri, but really enjoyed my time at Texas with UTD. Hi, Kavya. So like you mentioned, I uh, am a UTD alum. I graduated in December 2017, so I got to graduate a little early. And I am a 3L about to graduate from the University of North Texas at Dallas. Um, before we begin with the questions, I do want to thank both of y'all for taking the time to come and speak with us about your law school experiences and share a little bit of your insight into the world of law. The listeners and I truly appreciate all of your time that you can offer. That being said, this question pertains to both of you. Can you both talk a bit about the law school decision process and how each of you ended up at your present law schools? Yeah, so I applied to law schools my senior year of college. I actually ended up deferring for two years, but I applied when I was a senior. And, and I think visiting schools really helped in making my determinations. It's something I would highly recommend. I know that things are a little bit more difficult with COVID, but even if you can just talk to current students at the schools you're thinking of attending, I think that gives a lot of insight that you just can't get off of schools' websites or researching information online. So I think for me, I just you know, applied to maybe eight schools. I think that number really varies for a lot of people, but that was uh, how many I applied to. And then from there, sort of narrowed it down by both visiting the schools and then speaking to current students. So I also applied for law school in my senior year of college, but my senior year of college was cut short because I ended up graduating a semester early, which is something I originally did not expect. So I was able to have kind of like a gap semester between when I graduated and when I actually decided, or I actually started classes. During the time before, I obviously studied for the LSAT and started thinking about what law schools I was interested in. The driving factors for where I decided to go to law school was actually wholly focused on who was invested in me the most as a student. So to me, I wanted to go to the law school that offered me 
the most scholarship that offered me the amount of study that was going to be more focused in the area of legal practice that I eventually want to go into. I applied to only about five schools, but I applied to Texas schools only. And I know that's sometimes a decision folks who plan on practicing in Texas make. Otherwise, people will apply outside of the state. So for me, I knew I wanted to stay in Texas and I wanted to go to a school that was going to prioritize public interest students like me. And what was that transition like from undergrad at UTD to law school? Did both of you know exactly which career path you would want to take at UTD? Or was it something that you eventually found out during the process of law school? I was pretty sure from my freshman year at UTD, that I wanted to apply to law school, but in terms of exactly what I would want to do as a legal professional, that continues to be updated and changed. So that was definitely not something that I was sure of when I applied to law school. And then I think at UT Dallas, I did a couple activities that really confirmed that law school was the right fit for me. I was involved with the Innocence Project, which looks at, at prisoner cases where uh, usually people on, on death row or who are facing life sentences are claiming innocence. And we sort of look back through their cases in detail to try and see if there's a legal argument that can be made to get them released. I did that and I did moot court my senior year, which I really enjoyed. I wish I had done it earlier. I would highly recommend it. I'm actually now in the semifinals of Harvard's moot court competition. And so Really wish I had done it even more in undergrad, and it's something that you can carry over to law school. So for anyone that's interested in sort of oral argument and appellate advocacy, I would recommend doing that. And then I think just other things like student government and, and model UN are sort of semi-related. But all of those things, I think, made it clear that law school was the right fit. Law school is, I think, tremendously different than undergrad. And I do think it can be a bit of a culture shock. The exams at least uh, the ones that I've taken have been pretty different in their structure. And there are books and resources you can read about how to take law school exams. Getting to maybe is one that I, I know is highly recommended. You know, there is definitely a difference in undergrad, but I think if you are interested in these same sort of subjects and passionate about them, then I think that you can definitely adjust to law school and, and that you'll enjoy law school if you're interested in these things in undergrad as well. I would like to be candid about my experience. Going from undergraduate to law school was, like Nancy mentioned, a huge culture shock for me. I went from undergraduate feeling like I could just kind of fly by. I studied, but I didn't study hard. I really focused more on my time outside of school, and then law school happened, and I had to learn how to reteach my brain how to study. And then, of course, in your first year of law school, you go through this process where you have to reteach your brain how to write, too. And I think that's also a very difficult step that a lot of people have to deal with because you might go from undergrad being an incredible creative writer, editorial writer. But then you go into law school and there's this type of writing that none of us have experienced before, unless I guess you were a paralegal or you worked in that legal field. Um, it's a whole different format of writing. And it's not about necessarily being good, but making a strong argument in a legal format. And it's new. Um, in college, I did not necessarily know what type of law I wanted to practice, although I knew I wanted to do civil rights law. So um, I actually was lucky enough to know that I wanted to go to law school since I was in high school. I tell this funny story, but my freshman year of high school, we do this blood test in biology. And for my entire life before that, I wanted to be a dentist. And then during the blood test, I pass out and I find out I have some vagus nerve damage and they're like, can't be a dentist. So my career advisor is like, what are we going to do now? And I'm like, oh gosh, I have no idea. I felt like my life was over. And then my sophomore year, 
of high school, a friend of mine was murdered and it really pushed me into advocating for gun control and gun violence prevention. This spurred me to run for office first year at UT Dallas. And then from there, I started to learn a lot about discrimination against marginalized communities. And that kind of focused my attention more in being a lawyer towards civil rights. But it wasn't until law school that I actually learned, you know, I really like employment law and I really like disability rights law and education law. So I think it has been a continual journey for me. But the actual law school experience and curriculum was, in fact, a culture shock. I mean, I think both of y'all hit a lot of those points of those extracurriculars that you got involved in, as well as just like life experiences that you've had that helped you get to where you are now. And transitioning a bit outside of the law school realm, as I mentioned before, I know both of you are operating projects of your own. So I guess my first questions with regards to those projects are how do those projects pertain to your areas of interest in your present law school careers? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Dear Future Colleague, as you mentioned, supports underrepresented applicants to law school and then also to competitive scholarships like the Marshall Rhodes Schwarzman. But I think that there is an obligation that we owe as law students and as lawyers eventually to the legal community to help ensure that it is equitable, accessible, and diverse. And so even if the work I'm doing with DFC isn't directly related to my future practice area, I think uh, that I will continuously be committed to help ensuring that the legal profession in general is open to everyone that wants to enter it. Uh, And I'm, I'm really passionate about that idea. And so I think I hope to bring that attitude and that ideology to all parts of my legal work and to my life, uh, even if my, my practice area ends up being different. Similarly to Brooke, I am very interested in public-facing work, public interest work, government work. And so I, you know, I hope to engage in my practice area directly with underserved communities as well. But I think DFC is more about my feeling that we owe a broader obligation to the profession. So in December 2017, I co-founded the Lone Star Parity Project with a fellow at the time UTD student. And the Lone Star Parity Project was kind of born out of my personal experience with running for office and facing discrimination because of my identity as a Latina, but also my identity as a woman. And then Adriana's experience, who is our co-founder in research and being a woman in STEM. we combine these two to make this organization, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit in Texas dedicated to sharing the stories and research behind Women Plus in Texas politics. So our ultimate goal is to try and get more educational resources to women so that we can see more women, hence the word parity, in elected and appointed seats, um, essentially decision-making seats altogether in the state of Texas. We are one of the largest states that is going to be a soon to be battleground state. And I think that gives us a large control group where we can really start to analyze why are women not running and winning at the same rate? Why are women maybe winning a certain seat more so than another seat or different hierarchies of government and when they choose to run for office? So that kind of was born out of my external experience from law school. However, I have noticed that the work that I do with Lone Star Parity Project is very much intertwined with the work that I want to do when I graduate because I am very vested in anti-discrimination work. 
um, mainly in the employment field, so not so much necessarily in politics, but it is important to note that a lot of the women who end up receiving positions, that is considered employment in the state of Texas. So for someone to be in an appointed or elected office, sometimes that's a full-time position, such as some judgeships that have hearings all day. Um, and so it's important to know that those things can be intertwined. Um, but just like Nancy, I think it's really just me trying to do what I can with the experiences that I have, with the resources I have to help other young women not experience the same things I did. The final thing that I normally talk when I talk about why I continue to do Lone Star Parity Project, even though I'm in law school and wanting to be a lawyer someday, someday soon, um, is that I live my life by the saying, we stand atop the shoulders of giants so that we can see further than they ever did. And I want to be that giant one day for somebody else where I've pulled someone up else to my shoulders and they can see farther than I ever got to. And for me, working in Lone Star Parity Project is giving me an opportunity to do that in addition to what I want to do in the legal field. That was such an inspirational quote, I think. That is very telling of just what we should all be striving for eventually when we get to place of stability, what happens to the next generation. For Nancy, do you feel that law schools in particular have extended their support to underrepresented communities, or do you believe that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done by law schools to uplift minority communities? That's a, an interesting question. I think that law schools and all of higher academia and also all of like professional organizations and corporations can and should be doing more to support underrepresented groups. All of us need to, to do more. And I have seen some really positive initiatives by law schools uh, that I've been you know, extremely supportive of. Georgetown, for example, uh, is doing great work with a pipeline organization that tries to reach out uh, before people even apply to law school, but reaching out to younger students, I think at high school, to try and encourage them to think about law school later on. And I think reaching that far back in the timeline is really important, uh, that there are people that will self-select out, not just right before they would apply, but far further back. And so there are law schools doing really great work. Um, you know, there are law schools trying to, to reach underserved communities, but I definitely think that there's more to be done from all of us. And I think one of the most empowering things for me was to figure out that I didn't have to wait to engage in this work. I don't have to wait until I'm actually a lawyer or a legal professional. I don't have to wait until I graduate or I pass the bar. We can all be working on equity initiatives as students, as law school students and as college students and as high school students. There are things that all of us can be doing. And I know, for example, Brooke has been engaged in advocacy work since she was in high school. And so really, I think it's critical that we don't just look to institutions to solve these issues, but that we as individuals and as communities want to work on and address these problems as well. And I think it's actually through that collective action of individuals that more long-lasting, impactful change will be made than what institutions are capable of or willing to do. What do you think, us as a community, like you said, what do you think is the best way to make that change, make that progress, so we're not just constantly relying on the institutions to change it for us? Yeah, 
I think it's really critical to identify where there might be gaps in the system. And I feel like that's what DFC was trying to do. For example, we saw a lot of fantastic pipeline organizations, but most of them were cohort model. So you had to apply to get help from their program and then they'd take 25 to 50 people, but there would be hundreds of people that they couldn't help just because they had limited resources. And so the idea of our model, which matches current law student mentors to underrepresented applicants is that it's really scalable and we can do that for hundreds of people. We matched actually 300 mentees with mentors this last cycle. And so we felt like that was the gap that maybe we couldn't provide as intensive, resource intensive support, but we could give a far broader swath of people at least some support. So I think looking for gaps in these systems is a, a really great way to start. And then I think also there aren't always gaps, but there are always institutions that can be strengthened. So I'm really against the idea of repeating the wheel, right? Like if someone's already doing the work and especially if like people of color or people from these underrepresented groups are already doing the work, I think it's much better uh, for others to support them in their efforts and initiatives and help to strengthen those rather than to just say like, oh, I'm gonna start my own thing from scratch. Now, Brooke, on the Lone Star Parity Project website, it's described to be an organization dedicated to providing the necessary tools to ensure political parity across the state, which I think Right now, especially, I think a lot of people want to see that in the future, want to see that, especially with what has just occurred in our election process and everything like that. So can you describe a little bit about how you founded this incredible organization to promote parity? So just like Nancy mentioned, my ultimate, ultimate concern was recreating the wheel. So my senior year of college, I actually electively, I have no idea why I just wanted to do this, but I wanted to come out of undergraduate with a published thesis. So I did a senior honors thesis, even though I wasn't in the honors school, but they let me do it. Um, and I did a senior honors thesis about, or, or trying to analyze the difference between women running at state district levels or statewide levels compared to running at the local level. My guess was that more women might be running at the local level because uh, women tend to have stronger political grassroots ties to their community. And so I thought I would have that research. Well, as I started doing research, I'm freaking out because I'm like this entire plan I had come up with with my professor, I can't find any research on it. And then I started to realize that there was a huge gap in research where because local elections happen so often, uh, because sometimes the county or city is in charge of it and they might ha not have the infrastructure or the resources to keep track of this information. There is really no information unless you are a small state that actually tracks what running on the local level looks like. And so I realized that in Texas with 254 counties, that would be a great place to start in terms of trying to figure out how many women are actually running first and foremost down to the local level. And then once we get that information, what do we do with it? So when Adriana and, I, Adriana and I got together to co-found the Lone Star Parity Project, we said, what are our expertises? I felt like mine was in storytelling. Um, in doing this thesis research, and then of course in my own experience, I had learned that women either have an incredible amount of media coverage because they're being scrutinized, or they have almost no media coverage when they're running for office because it's 
interesting whenever we see a women run and not have to compete against another man, or we have a head-to-head -head women competition and we don't care as a community, unfortunately. So I said, I want to literally write down every story we can and start to get some of those qualitative data points, like who's your first role model? Or um, when did you even decide that you wanted to be in politics? Are we gonna see women that succeed because they've been thinking about it since they were two? Or are we gonna see women succeeding that were impassionate impassioned by something that happened to them in their older years. So I brought that feature and then Adriana brings the research side where we say let's find out from the county level down how many women are actually running in Texas. So together that's how the Lone Star Prairie project was created and we have these two main branches and collaboratively we put out the state of the Texas woman every other year where we are essentially capturing how many women are filing, running, and winning elected office down to the county level, although we are currently working um, on gathering data for the municipal level, which is incredibly exciting. And then we are also looking at appointed seats. At the same time, we're looking at our qualitative points, trying to gather some of those things like who are your role models, and putting that all in a nice package bow every other year when we have major election cycles. So right now, the Texas Secretary of State, who keeps track of all of election things, has no idea how many women of color are actually running for office because when you file to run for office, you don't share that information. There's no filing that says, I am um, a Latina woman running for office and I join the many ranks of others. Instead, you are just a name and not even a gender on a ballot. And so what we're doing is trying to put those qualitative points to those data, um, to that data information that's out there and it is strenuous and exhausting but so much fun because now we are gearing up i think next week to release our second state of the texas woman and we are already starting to realize patterns that we previously didn't even know existed because that data didn't exist and do the goals and the mission of the lone star parity project do they change with every election cycle and how might our listeners get involved with the organization so I'm always excited for people to jump in. Um, we hire staff members regularly. We also have a volunteer program specifically with UTD through the Jindal Outreach Program. So if you're a JSON student, you can always join and get those 75 hours you have to get for graduation um, and it's remote. So that has been a really incredible opportunity that our students have been able to take advantage of because we all work from home um, and we have since before COVID. Um, that's how folks can get involved. You can always go to our website, of course, I'm going to shamelessly plug www.lonestarparityproject.org. Um, and, you know, we do realize that data might change with each election cycle. We see different numbers, but the ultimate goal is always going to be the same. Now, my last two questions are kind of common for the under oath conclusion, and it's something I like to ask all of our guests. So um, the first one is, what is something you would tell yourself going into law school? And the second one is, what is something you recommend to all prospective law school students? You know, going into law school, uh, a lot of people have questions like, how do I prepare for law school? Like, what should I do the summer beforehand? How do I get ready for it? Really, I, I wish I would have told myself to just relax. Uh, law school is a big shift, like Brooke and I were both saying. It is a, a big change, but there's really not much you can do to prepare for it beforehand. And if anything, I think spending that time doing kind things for yourself, reading books you're interested in, spending time with family and friends is really the best use of it. 
And I think that that, that extends a little bit into law school in general. I really think that it's so hard to get yourself to relax and to not be stressed, especially as a 1L. But I think it's really pivotal to try and keep a work-life balance and to try and get sleep and eat healthy meals and exercise and just be forgiving to yourself. You know, law school is hard. People don't always do well their first year or whenever. And I think just recognizing that it's an amazing accomplishment to be there and that we're all people that can be a little more forgiving of ourselves is really important. Try and enjoy your time while you're there. So my first year of law school, uh, my first grade I got back, it was a contracts exam and I got a 40 on my first midterm. I was like, what? happened. I have no idea. And I was devastated and depressed. And my mom always reminded me, she is my number one role model. She always reminded me, you take the same bar as everyone else and you will become a lawyer just like everyone else. It doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter what grade you got. Um, I mean, of course, depending on what you want to do, because sometimes folks that hire and fired based on that. But my mom would always say, you will take the bar and you will pass the bar like everyone else. So what you do now is just a step in that journey to ultimately become a lawyer. And that first time that you help somebody out and they thank you, is it going to matter what that first test was 40 tests ago in law school? Or I guess if you go to school that only tests once, you know, your first year, is that going to matter? Um, so that's something I wish I had. Luckily, I heard it my first year, right? And luckily, it was my mom. But that's something I wish someone had told me uh, before I went into my first year of law school. And to echo what Nancy said in terms of self-care, it is so important. Since being in law school, I had to get glasses. I uh, got a condition in my elbow from sitting so long at my desk. I literally have to wear a little brace. Um, I have really bad IVS. I had to get my gallbladder removed. Like, things are serious. Like it's a, it's a very serious stress you put on your body, but in the end, take time to yourself, watch your favorite show. That homework's still going to be there and you don't have to be 100 every day in class because people are, are, everyone's human and you need to give yourself that leeway as a human being so that you can keep existing. Because if you're sick and you miss four weeks of class versus taking a break one day, because you're like, you know what, I've done so much today. I need to just calm down and maybe not you know, doing as well as you wanted to, that next day in class is going to be so much more important than having to miss out because you've made yourself sick. That wraps up our discussion. I want to thank Nancy and Brooke for taking the time out of their schedules to speak to us about their law school careers as well as their projects. We greatly appreciate it. As always, this is Under Oath, and I rest my case. Thank you for tuning in today to our bi-weekly episodes. My name is Maisha Shaif and I'm the production chair for WPL. This episode was written by Nadia Bhatti, edited by Kara Curtis, and hosted by Kavya Venagopalan. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you left a short review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on Instagram at UTDWPL and LinkedIn at UTD Woman Pursuing Law. Goodbye and stay safe.